We've all heard the term generation gap, but what about generation swap? What if we shift the gap narrative to one of honoring the value we offer each other in all stages of life? Not despite our generational differences, but because of them. Join our host, Professor Cindy Camp, as she pairs guests from unlikely places along life's journey, exploring the undeniable value we offer one another. In the U.S., we use labels like the silent generation, millennials, baby boomers, and Gen Z. These labels ignore our unique perspectives and values and encourage generational stereotypes. Over the past several years, I've been recording interviews with people across generations, asking them about their life stories and how their values shaped who they are. We've talked about so many categories of authentic living, highlighting wisdom, regardless of our generation. In today's episode, we've brought together some of the most thought-provoking moments from the show. Take a listen. I would say for me, identifying my values came probably first from teaching Cindy. When my children were little, I worked part-time and taught part-time at a local college. I taught business law and the legal environment. And I, I without even knowing about the last lecture tradition, I, on the last day of each of my classes, I would pull together what I believed was important in life and put it together as a top 10 list for my students. And it was in putting together that, I, that list that I kind of started to realize what was important to me. And then each Sunday, I took that list and developed it into a motivational program and a motivational CD called Back Pocket Skills. So that was probably the first step of really identifying what my life meant and, and what I live by. I think for all of us, raising our children really helps us see what we are about because suddenly we are starting to raise and shape and form and uh, try to instill in them what we believe is important. And that forces us to determine ourselves what we believe is important. And I think we all know it's what we do, not what we say that will mostly influence our children. So. I have four boys, the oldest now 17, the youngest nine, and raising them and instilling values in them has really helped me articulate my own. I, this sounds so simple, but I can hear my, my mother's wisdom uh, in the back of my head always um, in a sense of uh, thinking about how you want to be treated. And I remember um, feeling so terribly guilty when I was a child, uh, again in middle school, um, because I was someone who made someone else feel left out. And I remember thinking about um, how painful it must be to be to be the person who was acting as the excluder. Um, and I remember my mother always saying things like, you know, simple things like treat people like you want to be treated. And that concept, when you give it the ripple effect that it deserves, um, I think it has to be a question as we mature to think about questions of equity in our society. Um, there's no way that I want to be marginalized, and there's no way that I want to be part of a society that is marginalizing others. Um, and yet that's the society I live in. And so therefore, if I actually believe in the principles that I say I believe in, I have to work to do something about it. And for me, I try to do that work in my literature. I try to do that work as an educator. And I try to do that work in my everyday life the best that I can. Um, 
And I think that uh, the only way to do this work is not to think about how you're reaching out to help others on the margin, but rather that you're working in conjunction with those who have been underserved um, because they don't need me to go in there and save them. It's rather, I think, an, uh, uh, an effect of us working together is what actually creates the equity in the first place. I think part of the understanding of privilege is um, that my way into knowing about this is on some level purely intellectual. And I have to begin to do the work to remove it from the intellectual space and really pull it into the gut. And what do I mean by that? I mean that when I was a kid, um, when I was in high school, for example, I was really interested in trying to help the homeless. And I remember um, uh, one time uh, having a conversation with my father, and this is, this is what I said. I said, you know, and I was full of good intention. I said, so, Dad, guess what? This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go be homeless for a couple of days, and then I'm going to come back having understood what it means to be homeless, and then I can do a better job helping the homeless, right? And my father, you know, I can only imagine what was going through his mind at that moment, like, you moron. <laughs> but, 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 but really what he said to me was, Brendan, listen to what you said. You said you were going to go be homeless and then come home. You have no understanding of what it really means to be homeless. And he said to me, this is what it comes to privilege, that would be like you saying you could go be black for a day and know what that means. And you can't. You can never know what it means to be a black man in America. And I think that though I didn't have the, the framework and the language to talk about privilege, that sat with me in a way that made me begin to think about how our socialized experience creates a framework for our understanding and, and the, on the deepest levels of who we are. And so as I grew older, instead of reflecting on... Um, only on what people lack or how people are underserved or how people are marginalized, I had to reflect on the fact that it, you don't have a marginalized uh, group of folks unless you have people who are also unequally uh, prioritized, meaning privileged in some way. And so it felt to me like the work that I had to do was to reflect on my privilege and begin to work on the identity of someone who has um, unfairly, unjustly benefited from the racist system that organizes our society. One of the, the uh, most important experiences for me in starting IFYC occurred in high school, and uh, it was a moment of failure. Uh, one of my best friends in high school was a Jewish kid, and for a couple months during our third year in high school, a group of kids in a group of thugs in the school really started kind of going after him about his Jewish faith. And I watched him suffer and I did nothing. And some years later, he brought those months up with me, that, that time in his life, and said that the worst part of it was watching me watch him suffer and stay silent. And when I uh, shared that experience with my dad, his uh, frustration and kind of disappointment was palpable when he said to me, you failed your friend, but you also failed your faith. And it was, that was striking to me because my dad is not a ritualistic Muslim at all, uh, but he's always been a highly principled and ethical person, and, and, and that has come from his connection to Islam. 
and this notion that it is required of you that you stand up for people, especially those who are suffering, particularly when they're from a different background. And, and that was, uh, uh, that was um, a moment that kind of shook me, and I thought to myself, I, I never want to be this person again. I never want to be somebody who stays silent in the face of suffering that, that, that I could do something about. quality about yourself do you most cherish or value? Honesty. And that's a fault, too. <laughs> well, I suppose it can be because, <laughs> yeah, we have to be a little guarded sometimes with what we reveal. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I think I wear my emotions on my sleeve, as many uh, people would agree with. And uh, was certainly a quality of my father's that was found to be most endearing and most enduring. <laughs> Uh, honesty. Uh, what you see is what you get, and what I say and reveal is what I feel and 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 say. Um, and I don't know if any of that just made sense. Well, let me ask you: When you mentioned your father, I'm curious. You said that he was very honest, and that sometimes that's a, a quality that can both be a, a positive attribute and sometimes not. As a father, I'm guessing that he was um, a, a very inspirational for you, that he really pushed you, he motivated you, but were there times when his honesty was also hurtful? Very, very much so. He was very strict, but that strictness came from a commitment, right? If we didn't care about someone and we weren't committed to them, we wouldn't suffer uh, their trespasses and and um, we wouldn't be strict with them. I think my my father's strictness and his honesty came from a place of commitment and uh, both to, to himself and his values, his core values, and his commitment to me and my brother, hoping to evoke our best selves and our core values. And the same goes now for me as a friend and a wife and a mother and a daughter and a sister and a doctor. I'm exceptionally honest. And I'm still learning. I have hardly... Um, achieved my greatest self or my, my best self. I'm still learning and a practitioner of life, as we all are. Um, but I am nothing if I'm not true and honest. And I'm so grateful that people like me despite my honesty. <laughs> well, I'm thinking about something that I heard recently. Someone said to me, feedback is the breakfast of champions. And I love that because I think for a lot of us, feedback stings if it's really honest feedback, because let's face it, none of us does things perfectly and there's always room for improvement. But I think you have to have that mindset, the openness to hear someone's honest feedback. Um, so maybe you grew up with a, a dad who really helped to to see make you see the value of feedback and honesty. Um, but I'm sure you also had many moments when it was a little tough to oh, hear yeah. it. Yeah, it was. It was. Understand this. The challenges that my parents faced as immigrants in the 70s uh, were far different from the challenges that I'm facing because I speak English perfectly. I've been grounded in this system of education. Uh, and so I'm understood in ways that he never could be, right? His accent came in a way. His old world values came in the way. And so he struggled and had to fight for his place in ways that I haven't had to. Now, mind you, I'm challenged by my size. I'm 
I don't look American necessarily, depending on your value system and what American is supposed to look like. And when you say your size, you're quite petite. Uh, I guess our <laughs> listeners can't short. see you, so I'll add that. Oh, yeah. I, I often marvel that I married my husband so he would ch- change the genetic pool. He's much taller than I am. But, yeah, I, I think that my dad might have been understood because of his accent and his immigrant values um, that forced him then to be careful, fearful, instructional, severe, persistent. Um, And I understand. I I might have begrudged him as a child growing up for his severities, um, but I so understand where that came from. That came from a place of love and necessity and requirement. And I know he's proud of me. And I know he's proud of my brother. I know he's proud of my husband and our children because he he believed in us and loved us and nurtured us and fought for us. Um, so, yeah, I, I think with, with love comes severity sometimes, um, but it comes from a good place. You know, I think truthfulness, just really being being honest with other people, but most importantly, being honest with yourself um, and just kind of knowing yourself. And I think that starts to happen at this stage of the game, um, just really understanding who you are and being and being true to that. And um, but also really hard work. Um, you know, I I've just always been the person that if I start something, I want to finish it. And if I start something, I want it to be the best that it possibly can be. Um, and that I think has kind of gotten me to the place where I am today and continues to kind of motivate me. Um, when I started at the foundation, you know, my, my position was totally new and, and the foundation hadn't been doing their own educational programming. So, um, you know, it was kind of a blank slate, but it was also a very high expectation, you know, and I went from being a first grade teacher to working for like a president's foundation. And that was a big jump. Um, but just kind of going back to that, of like knowing who I am and knowing, you know, who I want to be and what I want these programs to be um, is really kind of the catalyst for making that happen. As you listen to people from different stages and walks of life discuss their intrinsic values, ask yourself, what values are guiding your life? Have they changed as you've aged or through important relationships? Is there a key individual who's helped you better understand yourself? The next segment highlights personal stories of how our values can impact the way we see others. Um, And I'm just wondering if your parents raised you with a strong sense of values or guiding principles already as a young child, and if so, what some of those principles were. Yeah, absolutely. I always say I I was lottery lucky when it came to family. I have wonderful parents, siblings that I love. We're all still very close, and I feel very, very fortunate uh, to have been raised in West Michigan with this great, you know, just just great group of people. I feel very, very lucky. I think that the principles that I was raised with involve kindness, integrity, uh, learning. My father loves to read, and he would often have a book in front of him, and I do the same thing. My father was pretty frugal, uh, but not in a terrible way. Uh, We joked about it. We still joke about it, but uh, he certainly gave us what we needed. And then also a very strong sense of openness. So although the community I grew up in was a small town, not particularly diverse, my mother was an immigrant from uh, Lithuania. She came over age 12. 
And my grandmother, who lived in Chicago, did not speak a lot of English. So I grew up with this appreciation and really a sense of pride for the other culture that helped make up my family. And so I've always been very open to people of other cultures and other backgrounds. My mother, I, I can recall a trip to New York. She came to me, came with me to New York to watch my daughter while I was doing some work there. And every single taxi cab we would get into, she would get into a conversation with the taxi driver. Where are you from? Many of them are immigrants. Where are you from? What's it like? They talk about the food and the lifestyle there. And in a very genuine and warm and interested way. So I grew up very interested in the world and other cultures. And so I feel very fortunate for having that kind of a background that allows me now, I hope, to, to engage and relate and learn about people all over the world. Well, I grew up in a family business. My father and mother ran a gas station and a small grocery store, which ultimately became a larger grocery store. And I just saw my parents uh, being so generous, um, being so helpful. Uh, Mom took first aid training so that whenever there was a tragedy, it was mom that was called out to the farm accident or the fire. And um, frequently, if a young man from our community was in, in jail, it was my dad who would get permission to go and visit. And, and if the priest couldn't be present for a wake at night, it was dad who led the, the, the funeral um, service awake at night. So, I mean, I saw parents who were exceedingly dedicated to service and very community-minded. My mom's the youngest of 10, and um, eight of them lived within three miles of each other, so we had lots of family community also. So I, I would say that um, it's living in a very small community um, with uh, the church was the center. I mean, it just was. <laughs> and, um, and then our grocery store and gas station were the other center. So... Um, I, I think that's where my desire for community and my desire for service came from. I remember on New Year's Eve when my, my parents and, um, and, and our family and a number of other families were all spending New Year's Eve together, and people had kind of saved up and decided they were going to have a, a, a hotel party. And um, so a number of families got hotel rooms side by side, um, at a at a hotel in Boston, and uh, we were all gonna you know hang out together. Um, the parents were partying in one room, and the kids of various ages were in another room. And um, the uh, kids were gonna watch the movie Die Hard, which uh, with Bruce Willis. And uh, and I was excited. I was really excited to watch this movie. Um, and my father came in and said, you know, you're you can't watch this. This movie is uh, too violent for for you. And I, I want to put myself in maybe fourth grade. Um, uh, so, you know, um, nine years old, maybe I was 10 years old, but um, he said, this is too violent. You can't watch this movie. And, um, and all the other parents at the party were giving him a hard time saying, Oh, come on, it's new year's. Like, what's the, what's the big deal? It's just, you know, it's just a movie and all the other kids were going to watch the movie. And so my dad pulled me out. And I had to I had to play Nerf basketball on my own in the hallway for a while, and then my father came back out of the adult party and took me downstairs to the lobby. And I'll never forget sitting on the on a, a little couch in the lobby of the hotel with him as he explained to me um, what's the point of having principles if you don't stick to them. And 
to see, and you know, and I was broken up about it, and I was so upset in the moment. But I, I, I still look back at that always with a with a, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, a sense of grounding. Um, that if you do believe in something, you have to you have to stick up for it and, and, and fight for it and stand by it. And I'll forever be grateful for my father for teaching me that lesson because though it's so simple in the moment, we can again using the ripple effect step out of that moment and begin to think about, well, if I really have problems with the racial injustice in our educational system, I can't just stand by and shrug my shoulders and say, well, you know, it's, 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 it's out of my hands or this is, you know, it's, I'll let it slide this time. No, I, I have to be somebody who can stand up in that, in that room and say, why are there, uh, why are there more than 75% of the people uh, who are authors in the curriculum in our county white? Why aren't we uh, doing a better job promoting voices of color in our curriculum? Um, I, I have to do that in the same way that my father stood up to his friends to say, just because you're going to let your kids watch this movie doesn't mean that I have to, too. My father was the most influential person in my life. He was the, a great role model, so we looked up to him. He always talked to us about how important education is. He encouraged that and supported us in anything that we needed to pursue our dreams and you know our aspirations. Plus, he also modeled it for us. So as a teacher, how he was so involved in how he taught and, you know, like the research he did, all the books that he used to have. He used to have a big library at home, so we were exposed to a lot of uh, books. Growing up, we also used to, since you mentioned Ghaffar Khan, he used to visit, uh, since he was uh, my father's uh, uncle, he used to visit and we used to look at this person who, even when he was older, was thinking of something outside of him, you know, not just his selfish needs. He was concerned about people. He was traveling different parts of the country, even though he was not in the best of health. So it kind of exposed us to have compassion for others and think outside of you. So I think those two people are the most as I look back, along with so many teachers, but those stand out um, to have mostly influenced me in my formative years. For me, the transformative moment happened in my my middle thirties. Um, it it in, I was well in ensconced in the family business. Uh, uh, had taken over as president of Hartwell Mortgage Corporation in my father's semi-retirement um, and accepted an assignment from the Grand Rapids Area Center for Ecumenism, GRACE, uh, to evaluate three mission programs we were supporting with hunger relief monies in, um, in Haiti. And it was, it was that experience, uh, I mean, I can... I, I can localize it to a particular instance during the week I was in Haiti and it was holding a, a little girl in my arms uh, at a clinic who was dying of hunger-related diseases and, um, and, and, 
and 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 I I I I know that was a turning point in my life. I I put theological language behind that, um, uh, uh, which may or may not be helpful in in this interview. But for me, it was a key turning point. Um, I came back from that experience. Susan hadn't been there with me, and uh, I, I think I, I uh, literally scared hell out of Susan when I came home. <laughs> Is that when you decided you were going back to school? It was. Wow. Well, so. it, it took a while. It yeah. took us a while. It took because about two years. We okay. had to wrestle with that. You yeah. know, what is... What is what you know? What is George being called to do here, and yeah. does that fit with what Susan uh, sees as the direction in her life? And it was a real struggle for us. Um, but it was out of that experience and 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 that struggle that I ended up going back to school to the theological seminary. We're so honored to have you with us for this special Best Of episode. We're talking about how our values help us understand ourselves and others, highlighting what that looks like through various stages of life. I was pastoring a church in a denomination that did not recognize LGBTQ persons as um, full a person celebrated their their identities and their uh, sexual orientations um, fully as as image bearers of God. So, and there was a minister who performed the wedding of his daughter to her partner, her wife, and he was charged with heresy. And some of us in the denomination um, wrote a letter in support of him. Myself and three of my colleagues in Chicago were actually charged with heresy for writing that letter in support. So just for voicing your support of his marrying his daughter to her partner, you were charged with heresy. Yes. And um, that denomination still has not, uh, does not support the LGBTQ community. Um, And so it was, it you know, it wasn't something that was going to change. I had to make a decision. Uh, my job was on the line. Like I literally could, my ordination could be taken away. So I had to decide when that letter came across my desk, do I sign this or do I take kind of the safe path? Even though I was supportive, we had LGBTQ people in our congregation. You know, do I, do I take a public stand on this issue. The group of us that signed the letter were saying to the denomination, you need to change your position. You're not supporting LGBTQ persons. And for that, that you need to repent. And so those of us who signed that letter then, well, only four of us, of the 300 that signed the letter, four of us were charged with heresy, saying, no, you're not taking a stand that's consistent with the church's policy. And so um, we were uh, admonished. There are five levels of discipline, and uh, the the overarching, the judicatory that oversees, that holds our credential, they said, we don't want to take this to trial. So basically what they did is they did kind of an in-house, you're wrong, and so we're going to admonish you. Uh, it's a, a little bit like a slap on the wrist, sure, like don't do that again. Yep. And it stayed in my record. Um, but it was at that point when I decided that I needed to find a denomination that was more consistent with my own belief system. Can I ask where you were and where you went? Sure. 
Um, I was ordained in the Reformed Church in America, and I am now ordained in the United Church of Christ. Let's pick up on one of those, uh, and that is uh, empathy. The research shows that that is probably the key emotional competency of effective corporate leaders in America. Daniel Goleman is one of the leaders in that that research. So that uh, the ability to uh, kind of understand the ideas and the emotional tone of people around us is uh, very, very crucial for effective corporate leadership in America. So this is very pragmatic, fits in with the market economy. You can do all the things that traditional Americans have wanted to do in terms of work hard and and be uh, creative and and create wealth. Um, But empathy is one of those very key uh, attributes. I've been uh, teaching a leadership course in a master's in business administration program at Bluffton University in Ohio for 10 years. And we spent about half the course on uh, emotional intelligence and helping people think about empathy as a very practical uh, resource in corporate leadership. And then I was, I was also er- earlier touching on the role of empathy in international affairs, of, of how uh, some Americans have moved away from the reflex, reflex of fear to the reflex of empathy and curiosity. And, you know, in, in preparation for this conversation uh, today, Cindy, I was thinking about the American news media. In 12 or 13 years of war with the Taliban in Afghanistan, I can't recall a single time where American newspapers or media have given us an inside view of how the Taliban thinks. So we have been facing an enemy that we don't know. And there's something pretty insane about that. So if more Americans or more media executives or more reporters had this uh, resource of curiosity and empathy, maybe we could understand the mind and the agenda and the interests of the Taliban. And chances are, eventually, we will achieve a negotiated political settlement with the Taliban, that that is the way most wars end that one group is not entirely vanquished. So one of my core values is empathy, and I see it applied domestically to corporate leadership. I see it applied internationally to, uh, to foreign policy. Another one is to see actions in a global context and to work at expanding opportunities for all people. Uh, and that's more and more of a challenge with 7 billion people in the world. And, uh, with uh, greater disparities uh, all the time, uh, that will be one of humanity's greatest challenges, I think, to, uh, to think about our individual actions in that global context. Uh, another value that has surfaced over the years for me is uh, foresight, and that is to consider the long-term impact of uh, decisions and actions. Uh, so often we're tied to simply uh, the moment or the quarter or the annual report but to think more long-term, I think, is very important for, uh, for us these days. You're listening to Generation Swap, mentoring through all stages of life. 
You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to access new episodes hot off the press. Check out our new website at generationswap.com. Okay, friends, back to today's show. I've written a lot about justice. I have thought and written a lot about justice. That happened because my college, where I was teaching, Calvin, sent me to a conference in South Africa, Potterstrom, a medium-sized city, about an hour's drive, as I recall, from Johannesburg. And at this conference, it was not about apartheid. It was about education in the, in the Protestant tradition, higher education in the Protestant tradition. There was a con- large contingent of Dutchmen. I think they were all men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, quite a few, well, a lot of Afrikaners. Uh, quite a few so-called coloreds and uh, blacks from South Africa, and a few of us from North America and Asia. So the Dutch were very angry at the Afrikaners for apartheid, and were very well informed. So the Dutch being the ones from Holland? Yeah, or, from, yeah. From, from Holland, yeah. So even though the conference was not about apartheid, they succeeded whenever a question period, went in the question periods right after a, a lecture, they succeeded in saying things like, well, I very much appreciated what you said, so, Professor So-and-so, but that leads me to think about this feature of apartheid. So the Afrikaners saw their conference being hijacked. So eventually they said, okay, we'll have an evening session devoted just to apartheid. So the people from Holland vented their anger. The Afrikaners vented their corresponding anger at, the, at the, what they called the judgmentalism of the Dutch. Then those two parties quieted down, and then the so-called coloreds and from coloreds and blacks from South Africa spoke up, and that was really moving. They described the daily indignities that were heaped on them by the system of apartheid uh, in in considerable detail. So it, I mean, it just became vivid, and uh, I could image it. And then the Afrikaners responded in what was to me the most astonishing way. They said, but the issue is not justice. The issue is benevolence. We are a benevolent people. The whole system of apartheid is benevolent. We we want each, in South Africa, there may be 11 different nationalities, languages and so forth. We want each nationality to find its own development, separate development, so they have to be separate. They can't, can't be mingled through each other. So two things happened to me. I felt called. I felt called by God to speak up for these people and to speak up for justice. And I saw, as I'd never seen before, benevolence, self-perceived benevolence, being used as an instrument of oppression. I think that you know one of the values that comes to mind in in all all of the projects that I'm a part of, but particularly in Nuns and Nuns, is to really be co-creators together. Um, to be to be a part of this co-creative process, um, to never do anything alone, um, sort of about the, the interdependence piece that Ellie was speaking to, um, to really do things collaboratively, cooperatively, and really as a, I view it as a countercultural value to the kind of competitive um, zero-sum game that it feels like we're, we're a part of in larger society where there are winners and losers, um, or people go about things in a solo journey and do it alone. Um, that I think the, the value I try to live into um, is to always be 
co-creating together to bring in partners and especially in just the creation of nuns and nuns it would have never happened with just me um i needed sister barbara and the the vision that sister barbara and the other sisters brought to it made it what it is um, and it, it really is sons and nuns at its heart a, a co-creation Um, what, something that's so important to stay in line with my values and how I want to live is to keep people close to me who will po always point me back to the truth and point me back to my true self and ask critical but encouraging questions. The world in which we live will always pull us towards more individualism, more selfishness, um, these cultural things that we are trying to counter and how that how we do spirituality and how we find community and meaning um so to to go against the grain requires support and to be in it together with one another um and so i think i i'm just so grateful for the space that nuns and nuns has been to be that community for me to allow me to go deeper in the ways that I want to and to feel a sense of accompaniment that I'm not alone in the questions I'm asking and in trying to live a different way in a, a bit more of a beautiful way, in my opinion. Um, and I think to always have those differing perspectives, to have input from sisters, to have input from fellow millennials from different faith traditions, just creates for a much more rich and holistic um, and ever-expanding worldview that is now invaluable to me. I try to, I try to live with an ethic of care. I believe strongly that love wins. Members of my family would accuse me of being Pollyannish, as we accused my mother of being, but, uh, but I, I tend to really believe that stuff, you know, it's not just words. It's 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 reality, and I um, I'm quite anti-institutional. Um, I see uh, an ethic of care being practiced by people on the grassroots level all over the place without institutional support. I I tend to do a lot of reading in history, uh, and I I not only find that it's instructive, but it's a source of solace because our country and the world has gone through horrible upheavals over time, worse than the things that we think are devastating now to our society, I think. And yet we've gotten through them. And I think somewhere there's the arc of justice bends slowly upward, right? And and I think the arc of love is right in there with the arc of justice. And I I'm not, you know, a kumbaya person. I'm not that naive about it. But I think that that is occurring and will occur. Um, I see more people that are happy with um, gentleness and kindness than are happy with anger and, and uh, meanness, frankly. As I, um, you know, matured, I was a child of the 60s, so... Um, late 60s and I'm in high school and we're talking about voting and how do you vote and it was tumultuous right and so um, I, I remember sitting at the dinner table and um, and you know I again I was the one who always provoked the hard conversations for my parents they were hoping it was just do you like the peas or not <laughs> and uh, I remember saying to my dad in particular 
Well, how do you decide who to vote for? And we were talking about this in government. There was this candidate or this candidate, and they had, and my dad said to me, you always vote for the little guy. He said, you always vote so that the, this is how I understood it, right? So that the policies that are created, the person who enters office is somebody who's going to support vulnerable people, that my dad was a businessman. And um, I think he understood that there are people who struggle in their lives. Uh, Maybe he saw how my grandpa struggled as a minister. Um, Maybe he saw people that he worked with that were struggling, but you always vote for the little guy. While our values have a huge impact on our relationships with people, they also shape the lens through which we view the environment and how we treat the earth. As we navigate sharing our planet with over 7 billion people, it's critical to consider our values and use them to shape priorities and guide our decision making. The interface for me has always been around my value set and bringing the values that have been shaped both through my my, my own uh, faith journey as well as uh, through my interaction with those who are on the margins of our community and bringing that into public office, not in the fashion I, I, I would say that, that some bring their faith to, to office as a, as, a, as a cudgel to beat others over the head, uh, uh, but, but as uh, a, a motivator and an, an, an impetus to serve those who are on the margins. During my tenure as mayor, I, I decided that sustainability was a really, really important concept for uh, our community. Um, it, was a, it was a bit of a new concept, uh, really. Business uh, had begun moving in that direction. Manufacturing had begun moving in that direction. But, but uh, um, uh, I brought sustainability to city government. Um, we early on realized we 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 didn't know much about it, uh, and so we surrounded ourselves with smart people. Uh, we created this uh, community sustainability partnership uh, with today uh, over 200 um, um, members who are businesses, governmental units, nonprofit organizations that are part of this. Uh, the balance is, uh, you've used exactly the right words, Cindy, the balance is the key here. Uh, it's not going overboard on any one um, environment to the to the uh, detriment of business, business to the detriment of social well-being, but it's finding a balance between the three. Um, it's the only way I'm convinced that we continue to uh, survive as a species uh, on this planet. I guess also reverence for the earth. My father was a woodworker. That's That was his essence. Uh, he did other things on occasion, but he was a woodworker. And I remember, and he would collect different species of wood to be used in making a table or whatever. And I well remember an occasion in which he was rubbing his hand over a piece of walnut or whatever and saying, Nick, this is going to make something really beautiful. So there was, there. I think the, the word I want is reverence. There was for him reverence in wood, things you shouldn't do to wood. A good wood like walnut, you don't paint it. You don't paint it. That, for him, that was just painful. Destroying um, that beautiful grain. You, know, right? you have to enjoy mm. the beautiful grain. Let it come out. Bring it out. Bring it out. Uh, yeah. Allow it to become what it wants to become. Um, and my my uncle, my uncle Chuck, for whom I worked, he loved the earth. 
Uh, he loved horses. He didn't love pigs and he didn't love pigs and hated chickens. <laughs> horses were his. <laughs> but he loved. But he loved horses. Really loved horses. Yeah. And loved uh, the farm that he bought had been uh, sort of run down. Loved bringing the buildings and the land back to productivity. There's a there's a woods, um, maybe 20 feet wide and. Uh, 300 feet long on the south side. It was it was hard packed clay. So I've built it up over the years by leaf mulch and so forth and planted uh, native uh, Michigan flowers. So in six weeks, I will see bluebells blooming, um, scylla, trillium, quite a bit of trillium, jack in the pulpits, uh, haliborus, um, Squirrel corn, Dutchman's breeches, geraniums, um, spring beauty, and more such. Um, most, all of those, the Halliburus is different. All of those are typically called ephemerals because they're very, uh, the blooming period is very short, maybe two, three weeks. Um, but that's what I'll see. We also own a patch of, of uh, land, of woods, basically, um, 80 acres, uh, 30 miles south of Grand Rapids. And that will be spectacular in six weeks. It'll be, um, it's covered, it, it, the forest floor will be covered with spring beauty and trillium and so forth. So it'll be a glorious carpet of white, of pinkish white, of light blue and so forth. It's, oh, it's, it'll be glorious. The environment is what kind of drives me. The the um, uh, Mother Earth, as we like to call call it, and the fact that we are damaging our Earth. Um, and there's we're putting um, pipelines through through sacred burial grounds at Standing Rock, um, out at the Sioux Reservation. We are. Um, uh, putting pipelines underneath the Mackinac Bridge. Native people have always been stewards of the environment and very concerned about that. Being quiet. <laughs> um, and honestly, I mean, just, you know, um, reflecting for this, for this assignment of being on the radio and being directly asked, how have your values influenced you? Tell me about a story from your childhood. I mean, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. And so I think just starting that conversation with yourself, with your friends, um, you know, you can talk about what you watched on Netflix or you could say, so what do I value? I asked my coworker this morning and she goes, I don't know, nothing. <laughs> I said, I'm sure you do. It's just, we don't think about it. We don't take the time to reflect. Yeah, that's and it's a, so a important. great observation, Bridget. I think, you know, some of these things are, are certainly there in us, mm -hmm. but we don't, you know, think very explicitly about them most of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's so good to be able to, yeah, to identify some things mm -hmm. that really are at the core of who you are as a mm -hmm. human being, kind of like that this, I believe, which yes. has been a, you know, mm -hmm. a decades old project. Uh, there's different ways of thinking about it, but yeah, what really is at the center of your life? Well, we talk a lot at Aquinas about finding purpose in our life, 
And I've had to sit back and reflect upon that, learn to be still myself and think, what really am I passionate about and what do I really want my legacy to be? And for me, it is um, teaching about Native culture and, and history to non-Native people. And I do that in my role um, at Aquinas in various capacities, not directly in my classes, but as um, a speaker or when I'm just talking to students, um, when I'm talking to other faculty, it, it comes out or I do um, some presentations as well, a lot of presentations. But And that's so, that's so valuable because I think most, most Americans who are not of Native American descent would have to acknowledge we don't know a lot about Native culture. And it's, you know, we spend so much time studying the 400 or so years of the European presence here, but the thousands of years of Native American heritage and history in the Western Hemisphere go sometimes completely unaddressed in our history classes. Or it's addressed incorrectly. Yeah. And so trying to get out the the ac more accurate, the the story from the Native perspective is what I try to do. Our values are critically important in daily life. This episode is meant to be a catalyst for furthering conversations about what values we hold dear, why, and next steps for living them out. We have three last intergenerational voices to leave you with. They share wisdom about how to incorporate values into more authentic and magnificent living. Yeah, when I think of living a life that's centered around a strong set of values, I also think about um, how can I hold those loosely? How can I be open to continual change and continual growth and um, continue to challenge myself and, and sort of define and refine what these values are over time? And I think even more challenging is how to be open to paradox as well. Um, and I, the value of paradox is as hard as it can be sometimes to um, sort of hold hold that um, value. I think that there's a lot of truth once we end up looking at things through that lens. And one of the paradoxes that um, we sit with in, in Nuns and Nuns as we're building relationships between these two communities and thinking about really big questions like the future of religious life together, um, it's the paradox that, that comes to mind, the language comes from uh, Adam Horowitz, who's another organizer, is that we must move at the speed of trust and with the fierce urgency of now. I, you know, I recently came across a phrase that has stuck with me. Uh, the phrase is moral joy. And it was the writer mm -hmm. David Brooks who's using it um, as in one of his books, talking about ethical life. And I'm wondering if you find moral joy in the work that you do, even at times when you've had to go against your church or against mm -hmm. society's conventions. Yeah, I, I probably call it moral anger more than moral joy. Um, somebody said to me, you know, what is saving your life these days? And I said, uh, my anger, because without it, I think I would just become complacent and cynical. And but when I see you smile, when you ask that question, it does give me great joy. It does to know that um, 
in this country, that we can critique what's going on, that we have the capacity to make a difference, that we can get angry and you let our anger empower us to, you know, make a difference, to impact people. That's a that's a really remarkable thing that should bring us joy. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you for that language. Yeah. Well, I, I just again, I read it recently and I really like the term, but I would imagine, yeah, from your point of view, when you have really committed your life to a certain kind of work and that you've been able to be true to that work, mm. that that would give you a sense of maybe peace as well. That that. Yeah, not very often. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I think that, you know, I am. Uh, it's a struggle for me to find peace. So um, right after I graduated from seminary, I knew that my life would get very busy and be uh, even more stressful than it was when I was going through seminary and uh, a mother of young children and all of that. And so I um, took a week um, of silence. I studied with a Buddhist monk for a week and uh, really learned to, to slow down, to pay attention to this moment, to learn how to let deep breaths be calming, to find the kind of ground of my being. Um, and that's been a source of peace for me. When I get anxious that I'm not doing enough or not making a difference or that thing isn't going to change or I need to do something else, I can um, slow down, take a deep breath, find a sense of peace and feel like God loves me just the way I am. doesn't matter what I do or don't do. Yes, Sunday, I would have to say the most prevailing value is my theory of lights and shadows. There's probably not a day that I don't say that to someone in my office or someone, you know, one of my children, that every experience in life has both lights and shadows within it. And I've lived by it all my life, even in the days when I wouldn't have been able to recognize or articulate it. So as one of 12 children, we didn't have that feeling of being special. There was very little money or resources. Everything had to be shared down to the, the, the thinnest part. But it taught me independence to reach out, to give me a hunger. I would never, I don't believe, have reached in far as life as I have if I hadn't come from that background, if I would have had a trust fund. And those 11 siblings are now part of my brightest light. We talked earlier about the lost loves and the broken relationships. I didn't meet my husband until my mid-30s. I have laying in the dark room, curled up like a fetus, as just another love came to an end. But that helped me grow strong and emotionally independent. And I would not be the strong, powerful wife and mother I am today if I had just, you know, met that knight in shining armor when I was 24 or 25. And we talked about law school and waitressing through the night and struggling to stay afloat. That was the shadow was that tiredness and, and not feeling entitled at the beginning. But the light was emerging diligent and hardworking and full of real life experience and walked into every job I applied for and eventually was able to have a successful practice and raise my children and get myself to a point in life that I don't think I would have being able to get through had I not had those difficulties. I think the stepping stones become the ladder. So that would probably be my greatest uh, prevailing value. 
whether you would consider it a value or not, it's what I live my life by. And the comfort of the philosophy, Cindy, is that no matter what is going wrong, I know the light will be there when I am ready to see it. Even those who have walked through fire. And if I maybe had one last word as a value for young people to live their life by, it would be that a good conscience, a clear conscience is a soft pillow. That if we live life by the values that we believe make the world a better place, we feel good and we can be successful and we can go out to the many roomed mansions and live a magnificent life. There are endless listening options out there. Thank you for tuning into our unique podcasting space. It would mean so much if you would subscribe, rate, and review Generation Swap. You can also visit our website at generationswap.com. Our show is produced by Sean O'Milia. The technical manager is Cassie Benton. The marketing coordinator is Gwen Vogelzang. And our host is Cindy Camp. We're looking forward to swapping intergenerational stories with you again next week.